You're tuned in to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by molecular neurobiologist Sean Shirazi. Welcome, Sean. Hello. Yeah, you're going to definitely have to tell us what a molecular neurobiologist, am I even saying those words in the right order? Yeah, you got it. You okay. got it. Uh, molecular neurobiologist. So let's break that down a little bit. So I guess I'm not looking at brain circuits. I'm more focused on just kind of how different cells interact with each other and kind of the interaction of molecules within those cells to produce like a specific phenotype. In my case, um, I'm looking at uh, traumatic brain injuries and, uh, and, and kind of studying the story of post-traumatic epilepsy from a molecular basis. Okay, so we're talking about brains. That's the neuro part, right? Because mm -hmm. that means like brain stuff. And then molecular, as in you're talking about the really small parts of the brain and, and the connections. That's Right, molecules, molecular Mo interactions, receptor yeah. interactions, that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay, cool. And you said you're looking at trauma. So is that human stuff? Or? So eventually, I really love translatable research. So yeah, the hope that I have would be that it would be eventually translatable into something that benefits you and me. Okay, but you're not poking people's brains right now? Not yet. <laughs> not with machinery. <laughs> no, not with machinery. <laughs> okay, okay. So the... Br what? Oh, and the advantage <laughs> to um, me, you know, and I don't really need to poke people's heads too much because people are often poking their heads for me anyway, so... What's that mean? Head trauma. Oh, Every, head it's, trauma. It's just something, it's, it, everybody will experience a head trauma at some point. It's part of the human condition. <laughs> Interesting. And so, and we're going to get into this more later when we talk about your work here at Berkeley, but but you're interested in just what's happening to the brain after that sort of trauma? So it's crazy. The kind of things that I'm, I'm looking at is, so if you were to get, uh, like, for example, a, a really severe head trauma, your probability of getting epilepsy months to years after that event is roughly uh, like 10 to 50 percent, depending on um, the severity and also depending on whoever did whoever did this test, the stats to get those numbers. Um, so that's kind of what I'm looking at is like what's going on that would cause a post-traumatic epilepsy. So did you see that movie Concussion then? <laughs> I did. I did. It seems so relevant, so timely right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a hot topic right now, but I suppose it's always been, you know, a hot topic in, in, in neurology or in the clinic, you know, just like it's just we have millions of cases of, of traumatic brain injury just in the U.S. like every single year. And, 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 and those are just the reported cases. You know, we probably have uh, the vast majority of these cases aren't even reported. So are most of those cases related to sports or is it just a huge array of things? It's a huge array of things. Like, you know, I've gotten a concussion by falling on my head. You know, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be sports related. I did get a concussion at a at a concert when I was in high school. I, I probably shouldn't even say which band it was, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, a high school band that I was into. And yeah, anyway, there are lots of ways to hit your head. So have you always been obsessed with the brain or is this is this a new thing? No, I haven't always been obsessed with the brain. Um, actually, I was uh, planning to go into law school out of undergrad. Oh, okay. So it's a very recent thing then. I guess relatively. Like, I feel like I've been doing it for a while, but I suppose, yeah, it is uh, more fairly recent. So law, where, then where'd you get your interest in science? So I was um, taking an anatomy class here, uh, IB uh, 131, and at the time it was taught by Marion Diamond. And day one of class, she had this like flower box. I, and I think this, uh, she, she gives this lecture 
every year it's like her first you know her, her first talk and i and i think it's on youtube and she has this like flower box and sweet old lady and then i see her putting on a glove and she reaches into this flowery hat box and pulls out a brain and she and like behold like this three pound organ that can go faster than light that can time travel she gives this beautiful um speech about the the wonders of the the most complicated thing that we know in the universe the the human brain and i had a spiritual like experience out of that and i knew that wow like it was just really really profound it was just kind of like falling instantly in love and sticking with it and um yeah and i've been fascinated with the brain ever since and for those of us who might not be as familiar with her work, can you give us like a little background on Marion Diamond? Oh, she's amazing. She was uh, a, a famous uh, a neuroscientist and anatomist here at Berkeley. Actually, one of the coolest things that, that she's done was uh, dissect a chunk of Albert Einstein's brain. And she was the only, and after Einstein died, they cubed his brain. So it was after he died. Okay. It was after he died. Okay, yeah, okay yeah, just checking. Yeah, that was, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, yeah, so she was. Uh, so they cubed his brain. They sent uh, chunks of his brain to universities all around the world to try to get the world's best neuroscientists to see. Well, can you see a morphological difference between his brain and the quote uh, quote unquote a normal brain? And nobody really found any differences except for Marion Diamond, and she found that he had like double the amount of astrocytes. And I think I forgot which Broca's regions or which brain regions she looked at two two areas, one in the in the prefrontal cortex and another chunk in his parietal. And she found that he had a statistically significant greater amount of astrocytes than a control brain. What's a, what's an astrocyte? So before and, and she was kind of like one of the pioneers, like in looking at astrocytes. Our brain is actually not mostly neurons. You know, we, we kind of have this neurocentric view of the brain, but actually uh, the, the most abundant cell type in the human brain is the astrocyte. And it serves a whole, I mean, it, ser it does so much. It does so much. At, a long time ago, we thought that it was just kind of like this glue and that kind of held neurons together and kind of served like as a scaffold. I know that's an oversimplification. And, and that's why um, astrocytes belong to this class of brain cell types called glia, which literally means glue. But it turns out they do a ton of stuff. They regulate uh, neurogenesis, that's new brain cell um, formation. They regulate synaptogenesis, that's how uh, different uh, brain cells communicate with each other. They also provide a lot of buffering to, to the synapse such that if you were to like remove the astrocyte, you know, neurons become sickly and, and, and you know, they could, they, they, they could die. They could, you, can, you can have something called glutamatergic excitotoxicity, which is an excess amount of neurotransmitter in the, in the synapse. And, and astrocytes do a lot to buffer the synaptic environment. So if I get some of these astrocytes and I put them in my brain, will I be as smart as Einstein? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a tough question, but um, does it may, work like that? I don't. I, yeah, it doesn't exactly work that. Dang way. it! I was really hoping I might be able to find a shortcut through this grad program. <laughs> okay, so you saw Marion Diamond's lecture on the brain. So that means you must have been an undergrad here at Berkeley, then. Yes. Yeah, and you decided you wanted to stick around, huh? Uh, yeah, I loved it so much that um, I'm still here. But I read that, so you were integrative biology mm -hmm. as an undergrad, but now you're in a different department. No, I'm actually still in IB. As an undergrad, I had a double major in integrative biology and in MCB neuro. 
Okay. So, and I stuck around in the IB department, and I didn't have to do any rotations, so that was kind of awesome. I knew exactly like which lab I wanted to be in. So, um, but why are you in a different building then? Uh, because um, I don't know. We're just cool like that. You just got more brain technology over there. Yeah, just the infrastructure um, at, in Likaxing is is awesome. Great. Well, um, did you do? Do you want to talk about any of your undergrad experiences, or should we just skip right to? The main event. Um, undergrad was awesome, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Marion Diamond was awesome. And mm -hmm. law school is not for you, I guess. Huh? Yeah, law school, you know, I, yeah, I suppose. You know, I don't know. I guess uh, we'll find out how my thesis goes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure it'll all be good. I'll be good. So what, okay, let's go back to your dissertation then or your current research project. You're in IB, but you don't sit in our building. Um, you do brain stuff. So actually not a lot of people in IB do brain stuff am i right or am i uh yeah well i mean there's there's the bentley lab that does uh, neuroendocrinology and well obviously the copper lab which is my lab and yeah there's not i'm, I'm kind of like the odd duck of ib yeah, yeah but you don't use ducks right mice yeah yeah we haven't, the odd we haven't mouse. yeah we haven't switched to a duck model but i was actually well maybe maybe we'll use a woodpecker model for traumatic brain injury in the future oh yeah but, why is that well because like how how is it that um you don't really see um woodpeckers developing uh, uh a lot of like the the pathologies that you see you know how, how is it a woodpecker is exposing its brain to all those forces um and not getting um no that's not, a good question falling I, out of the sky i know? assume they have really strong bony structure yeah, I mean, I suspect that there's a more complicated story, but you know, that's neither here nor there. That was, it could be, it could yeah. be here or there. It would, it would be really cool though. I would like to look at some woodpecker brains. Yeah. So, what kind of brains are you usually looking at? I'm working in a rat and mouse model. So, you're looking at mice. Are is the mouse brain pretty similar to the human brain, or are there any major differences? Well, on there, there are. A ton of differences, but in the scale that I'm looking at, and particularly I'm looking at the interactions of neurons and astrocytes in a traumatic brain injury context, a lot of the pathways, I mean, that that's very that's very translatable. Like, for example, like I wouldn't be able to interview a mouse the way you're, for example, interviewing me, but I can take a look and see how different cell types interact with each other. And that that's that's th those a lot of those processes are happening within us. But how can you look and see that? I mean, I've seen brains before. They just like kind of look gray and mushy. So we, we apply a technique called immunohistochemistry. Um, there's also there's a there's a ton of stuff that, that, that you can do. A lot of like imaging. We look at like behavior following trauma and we're staining for different types of proteins and looking at the difference in expression of these uh, type different types of proteins um, following uh, traumatic brain injury. So is it just like looking at expression at certain time points and then you have to match up the series to see how it progresses? Yeah, and it turns into like kind of a puzzle because depending on what you look at, depending on the type, the extent of the injury, depending on the kind of phenotype that you're observing, you're kind of looking at different snapshots and then from that building a model of what's going on. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to 90.7 FM KLX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates. Today I'm joined by neuroscientist Sean Shirazi from the Department of Integrative Biology talking about his work looking at the brain, uh, the mouse brain mostly. Okay, so you mentioned immunohistostaining. What was that one? Yeah, so it's just using uh, immunohistochemistry, um, yeah, and immunostain. Um, that's, that's a big chunk of what I do. And that's um, getting because you can design antibodies that bind with relatively high specificity 
to a single protein, actually even to a single um, amino acid you can design an antibody for. And then these antibodies, you can add another antibody that targets the antibodies that you've added, that you've attached to these proteins, and those secondary antibodies like glow. So then we take it to a microscope, and then you can like see what lights up, so to speak. You quantify that. You see the distribution of the protein of interest that you're trying to study. And then from there, you can make certain inferences depending on your experimental manipulation. Okay. So just to recap what you just said. So basically, you're looking for one specific thing in the brain, and so you attach some glowing object to it you know, at a very small scale, and then you can just see wherever it's glowing that lets you know yeah, so that that's where that compound is. Right. So you're, 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 you're tagging certain, you're tagging different things. So like, for instance, what I'm looking at is this receptor and, and studying kind of like what's happening downstream. And I'm looking at this receptor called TGF beta transforming growth factor beta. Um, and those are receptors expressed actually on, on, on astrocytes too, and to a limited extent neurons. And yeah, and so after after traumatic brain injury, you have a disruption in the blood-brain barrier. And this, this disruption in the blood-brain barrier allows a lot of the proteins that, that are in your general circulation, it allows it to leak in. And, you know, the brain is really a, a completely separate environment from the rest of your body because it needs to have, just have such exquisite control over the extracellular environment because, you know, you have to worry about ions and it's just a very unique environment um, relative to the rest of the body. So when stuff from the general circulation starts leaking in, like for instance, albumin, it'll bind to this astrocyte and the astrocyte becomes reactive. Um, it, it, it grows in size. It, it, it also uh, causes a lot of uh, dysfunction in its ability to regulate the synaptic environment. And uh, the model that we're working with kind of looks at that interaction. It's funny. You're, I've, I'm clearly teaching human repro this semester because you're talking about this blood-brain barrier, and all I'm thinking about is the blood testis border. So it's it's probably not actually that different if you think about it. Special cargo in there. You got to keep it separated from the blood, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, <laughs> that's just that's definitely a joke waiting to be written. I totally. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so I've got sort of a I won't call it hand wavy, but not a typical question for you. I'm just thinking. I mean, it's just so hard to imagine. How do you think about a brain, which is like a whole organ, right, organismal level, this whole organ, and then you're thinking about these little tiny astrocytes. So how, just inside your brain, how are you making that, you know, transition across this whole organ level down to these little tiny parts of the organ? I, I, I suppose, yeah, well, that, that's a great question. And I suppose um, with respect to, to my research, um, I'm not because it's really, really, really hard to extrapolate. Like, so, so if if I, I understand you right, like, how do we extrapolate uh, the interaction of like, say, two cells to say the, the yeah, and not the, even extra, like, not even scientific like extrapolate, but like, just how do you personally even think about it? Like, because it seems like they're so far apart in terms of when you're thinking about things that it would be difficult to wrap your mind around this concept of like these little small things leading up to this whole organ level system. Well, the way I look at it is just you have to really be sensitive to the scale at which you're operating on. Like for instance, like even though, you know, everything, all of our behavior has a neurological basis, it doesn't like for instance doesn't make sense to study the interactions of whole societies on a molecular well yeah, i suppose you can but it would be really really difficult just in the same way that like looking at circuits and and looking at how different brain regions communicate to other brain regions on a circuit level 
it would be very difficult to to look at that through the lens of of molecular interactions. It just becomes way too hairy and way too complicated, and you just you might get lost in a lot of noise. So it, you just have to be really sensitive to the scale in which you're operating in. Okay, I'm going to ask you more tough questions because you're good at it. So here's another one. You keep saying circuits in the brain. Do you know which came first, like our idea of circuits in the brain or circuits like in uh, electronics? Or are they related at all? Is that it's there's got to be some influence one way or the you know, other? Yeah, it's kind of funny because I, I, I keep on thinking about that. That brings to mind the inventor of the, the, the galvanic scale as the name. Uh, well, Luigi, I think it was Luigi Galvani. But I guess don't quote me on that. Um, <laughs> I, I should do some fact checking. But, you know, the guy who invented like like one of the world's first like batteries was actually an anatomist out of like like Italy um, trying to see like why why is it that if you stimulate a nerve like this, this freshly killed frog will still will still move. Um, so it's kind of funny how like, you know, neuroscience or just like neuroanatomy and electricity and, and electronics that that all is kind of yeah they're they're, they're kind of uh, interrelated and uh, some of the coolest experiments yeah were done by people that had uh, an intimate understanding of 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 circuits like on, like in the electronic context you know like recording from a giant squid axon Hodgkin Huxley's work in the early um, in the early twentieth century being able to mathematically describe the action potential and them actually representing a neuron um, like a circuit so. I don't think I'm answering your question, but no, no, you're definitely getting there. Wait, but pause. Did you say one axon from a squid? Is yes. that what I heard? Yes, squid giant axon. So how did they? Is it a giant squid or a giant axon? <laughs> it's a giant axon from a giant squid. How did they get one axon out of a giant squid? Well, brain? I think you can like. Well, no, no. I, th- I the uh, <laughs> they're they're huge. I think I think you could actually see this with like the naked eye. It's, I forgot the the, the dimensions, but. Yeah, it's just massive. Those giant squids, man. Just yeah. a, an animal of mystery. Yeah, and they have to- yeah, their brains are totally weird too. They're yeah. donut shaped. They like wrap around their esophagus. What? Uh, yeah, their their, their tentacles can actually have computational like ability that like you know, and not not in the same way that we have simple reflexes, but actually really complex computation can occur in their in their tentacles. They're really cool. I love. What are some other crazy brains you know about? Uh, I don't know. Bird brains are pretty are pretty cool. Like it just you know like I don't know why. Why are they cool? Is it because they? Whenever I see a hummingbird or a hawk like flying around, especially the hummingbirds, you're like, man, what is it like to process the world so quickly that you can move that fast, right? Yeah, I so mean, is that what you mean? Or yeah, well, it's just kind of funny because like we have a lot of the a lot of the the the, the basic structures all there. Like they have cerebellum, they have a brainstem. But but then but then there are other structures just because, you know, I, I forgot when, you know, how many millions of years we separated from the bird clade. But it was a while. Ago. It was a while ago. Right. Yeah. So you have all of these really cool evolutionary adaptations that we don't see. It's, it's, it's totally alien to me, you know, because I'm just always so used to studying uh, a mammalian context. And it's just really fascinating just seeing like the, and that's kind of like why like I, I, I'm actually really curious about about woodpeckers just because it's like, well, what kind of adaptations? Did they have to be able to cope with uh, traumatic brain injuries? Yeah, they they definitely have um, some some skeletal um, adaptations that allow them to uh, repeatedly injure themselves. But you know, I suspect there's also a lot more going on under under the hood, so to speak. You could ask the same question about some of those like uh, mountain goats or rams. Anything that's you know getting a lot of head. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of force. Yeah, and may and maybe and maybe they're also experiencing the same things that we experience. Um, maybe they all have 
chronic traumatic encephalopathy or just the or these like um, tauopathies that we're seeing with repeated head trauma, but they just don't live long enough to, you know, for us to see um, that kind of dysfunction. Mm. So I don't know. Yeah, you know no, I don't, that's a good question. I should go on Google Scholar and look it up tonight. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So uh, we talked about this this guy, uh, Giovanni, right? Is that what you said? Or uh, uh, Galvani. Al Gal- Galvani. <laughs> Galvani. Yeah. Uh, back in the day, how long ago was that? Remind me. I think that was like early 1800s. Early 1800s. Anatomist, thinking about brains, thinking about electricity and all that stuff. How different is the process now? Like how different is your lab from his lab? Has technology come so much further that you're not using any of the same methods? Uh, yeah. I mean, like, you know, I guess we still use paper and the scientific <laughs> method. Um, but no yeah, the abacus. Tool, yeah, no, no abacus. But but the tools are just like so much sexier now. Like there's just so much cool, cool stuff that that wasn't available. Like like like, for instance, like um, what I think is really, really exciting and um, something that I'm playing around with is like. Uh, for example, light sheet confocal microscopy, like where now I can get a chunk of brain and like even as as early as like like two years ago, um, we would have to like thinly slice, well, maybe more, more than two years ago, but we'd have to like thinly slice brains into 20 micron thick sections, do the stain, put it under the microscope, look at slice by slice and then kind of like stitch those slices together in order to generate like say like a like a three-dimensional image of the brain but now we can actually take big big chunks and heck even whole brains um, make it translucent um, using a method like clarity or, or cubic and then we take this translucent brain we stain it and we shoot it with a with a laser and scan the whole thing with a laser and then see a representation of the whole brain in 3D. And I think that's really, really cool because there is a lot of information that gets lost with, with slicing and you, you do disrupt the, the, the morphology that you're trying to like really capture. And I think that's really exciting, you know, and especially like with our, our methods in say like virology, make signing viral vectors to manipulate uh, how cells respond to certain things. Yeah, we just have uh, lots of cool new tools that we can use to answer these questions that we would otherwise not be unable to. I've, I've had people on the show talking about their work with lasers, but you're the first person to have lasers and brains at the same time. That's pretty sweet. Yeah, there's a lot of lasers and brains these days. Like, you know, like optogenetics is really cool. Like we can now like turn on or turn off uh, certain brain regions with just using light, you know, um, by designing a, a virus that gets neurons to express a photosensitive ion channel, for instance, and we can, you know, tackle, we can, we can ask uh, uh, deeper questions that we wouldn't be otherwise able to. So what's the, what's your favorite piece of equipment? Did you, was that the one? Yeah, it was, it's clear that the light sheet (laughs) confocal, like, yeah, yeah, we have some really cool tools. Sweet. So we're actually coming up on the end of the show already. I know. I always want to give grad students a chance to get up on the soapbox, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So now's the chance for if you have anything, you know, any issues of concern that, you know, think the general public should really know about in terms of science or in terms of research, now's your chance. I suppose wear a helmet. <laughs> <laughs> wear a helmet, just uh, like when you're walking around, try, right? Yeah, yeah, just, yeah, while, you, you know, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, avoid repeat, <laughs> repetitive head traumas and do what you love. No, those are all good things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what about for students? Do you have any advice 
for students who are interested in research, uh, go see Marion Diamond, give a talk about brains and <laughs> Yeah, I mean definitely Google Google uh, Marion Diamond's first anatomy lecture just to get a sense. Um, she she is amazing. There there's a documentary about her life. Uh, I saw her last Saturday. It was really awesome. And um, but really like like for me, um, getting into a research lab, especially in a place like Berkeley, is really difficult. And my, I guess my, my most valuable piece of advice it, for those that are interested in doing research is just, just never give up. Just never give up. It took me like maybe like 50 attempts to try to find a lab that would bring me in. But just don't get discouraged and just, you know. Yeah. So just keep trying. Just keep trying. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What about, it seems like you're a good source of knowledge about this loss. So you mentioned Marion Diamond's lecture. Are there any other faculty or researcher or or even just programs that you know about that you think people might be interested in in terms of, you know, if they could see one person talk or if they could. We have amazing faculty here. I mean, that's that's what's great about Berkeley. It's just that, you know, like if we just have such an amazing faculty here and, you know, I don't know, everybody's kind of more or less doing really, really interesting, interesting things. Uh, yeah, sorry. Do you guys open up for Cal Day at all? Or no, 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 just the MVZ and the actually, I think it. I I think we do open up for Cal Day, but I'm usually like stuck in the lab, so I don't. Yeah, yeah. Okay, just trying to figure out if there's a way for people to look at some brains around here. If, where 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 could the public go to look at some brains? Paxton Gate is that the only place? Hmm. I actually don't know Paxton Gate. So it's on Valencia Street in San Francisco, yeah. and it's like a natural history store, and mm -hmm. so. Uh, I know they have a lot of skeletal materials. I mean, if you if you want to take a look at some brains, um, I, I would I would take um, like one thirty one one thirty one lab, you know, like a, a IB one thirty one lab. Yeah, tons yeah. of brains. It's That's awesome. what I GSI last semester. There were brains, yeah. There were brains. Yeah, actually, everybody got to dissect a brain. No, we got to dissect hearts. I think you might be able to get a brain, a fresh brain from the butcher or something like that. Um, yeah. I mean, people eat brains. Yeah, don't eat brains. Don't eat it. Yeah. No. Do you you don't absorb their knowledge? It's no, no. I tried it once, but you know, then I started getting paranoid about Creutzfeldt Jakob and <laughs> prion disease. Ah, uh, yeah, that that good old thing. Oh yeah, tell yeah. us about that. I I learned about that a little bit too. Um, you don't you want to tell? No. Because no. <laughs> you know that it's not just humans that can get that. Deer get it too. Actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what mad cow is, right? So, yeah, and mad yeah. cow. Yeah. yeah so if you don't want to tell them, then I will. It's okay. That basically it's a brain disease from from prions, which uh, are actually like what proteins or yeah proteins. Yeah. yeah. So who knew you could get diseases from proteins? But one animal gets it, and then another animal eats like. You know, somewhere some grass that that animal peed on, and all of a sudden they ingested those proteins, and then their brain has holes in it. Yeah, that's pretty much how it goes. Or if you feed a cow, other cows, it goes mad. Yeah, or deer. Apparently, in really uh, difficult winters, they uh, cannibalize their own, and they can spread it that way. But there are human cannibals that mm -hmm. spread it as well. Anyway, brains, fascinating. Brains. Got any last-minute brain facts for us? Hmm. Three pounds, huh? It's three pounds. <laughs> you know, we have um, as many uh, brain cells as there are stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Um, but actually, what, one thing that I, I, I think that's really, really interesting, just to like most of your most of the neurons in your brain, it's, it's, it's all packed into your cerebellum, which by volume is not, you know, like significant. Relative. So what's in the rest of the brain? You. White matter? <laughs> yeah, no, no. You have a lot of white matter, but it's just interesting, like how much of the brain is devoted to kind of like 
you know, like fine, fine motor movements, you know, just computationally. Like we, I, I just think that that's like, you know, we always think about the brain being like a lot of like, you know, like these mental processes, our internal environment, but so much of our brain is just devoted to just moving, you know, moving. So that's... what about that? Um, that's... Oh, and go on a run. Running is awesome for the brain. Running is awesome for the brain. Don't, don't tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you secrete this uh, vesicular endothelial growth factor, VEGF, when you run that increases rates of new brain cell growth. It, Only it... running? What about other exercise? Uh, you can also take antidepressants, I suppose. <laughs> what but... is it about the running? But the running is good for you. Like, I don't know. Maybe is it it's the bouncing up and down. I Yeah. I mean, don't bounce up and down too much. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know. There's something about running. Maybe it has something to do with the context in which we evolved. I don't know. I don't know. What about that silly thing that you hear people say that we're only using 10% of our brain at one time? Yeah, that's that's not true. <laughs> so we're using all of our brain. Uh, yeah, we're using all of our brain. Maybe not all at the same time, right? And like, but but we do use all of our brain. Because <laughs> okay. if you did use all of your brain at the same time, and if you turned on all your neurons, that's kind of like what a seizure is, right? <laughs> oh. So, you know, that that's something that I, 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 f I find very interesting is, you know, you have like, the asymmetry in, in activation and you'll really only see like um, like like symmetry in like sleep or during seizures and in terms of like like what neurons are firing. I think that's really interesting, you know. No, it's really interesting. Okay, so we're out of time here. You got any last words? Wear a helmet. Wear a helmet, go for a run. Go for a run. Okay, fine. <laughs> well, thank you, Sean, for joining us here today. Uh, my name's Tesla Munson. This has been another episode of The Graduates here on Calix. Today, I've been joined by molecular neurobiologist Sean Shirazi. He's been telling us all about his work with brains and trying to understand what happens to the brain after trauma and just like looking at little tiny things, right? Astrocytes and neurons. And mm -hmm. that, does that about sum it up? Yeah, and the blood brain barrier. And the blood brain barrier, yeah. Um, so thank you again, Sean, and we'll be back in two weeks with another episode of The Graduates. Until then, stay tuned. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX, Berkeley.